Hi, I'm Emily Paget. This is Century 21. On this show, we talk about online media and how it's influenced my generation, those kids born right before or at the turn of the century. We started maturing in the context of Google and of social media and that constant bombardment of information with which the world is so familiar today. It's our norm. All of us received the stranger talk when we were kids. Don't talk to them. If someone wants to give you candy, call for help. If someone says they've lost their puppy, run away. Keep your head down. For me, it was like this online as well. When I started my first email account in fifth grade, my mom warned me about opening or responding to emails from people I don't know. Two years later, when I logged onto Facebook for the first time, I was told both by my mom and by Facebook itself not to accept friend requests from strangers. But we're still drawn to the freedom of anonymity that comes with any online account, so oftentimes we still talk to these faceless strangers anyway. In the previous episode about community, we spoke about how anonymity can make you anyone you want, and the opportunity to learn and practice social skills that that comes with. That was anonymity in a positive light, but anonymity can also force us to learn other skills as well, like how to deal with criticism, or trolling, or straight-up hate. This ease many online users feel behind a screen, like Kevin Mackler from the last episode making friends on Club Penguin, often gives way to the worst parts of us, the voices in our head that automatically jump to judgment of another person. The lack of face-to-face interaction has the ability to erase the filters of humanity, resulting in quick-thinking negative speech. Everyone's done it. Everyone has, in a moment of passion, jumped to their keyboards and typed out something negative or snide or hateful about someone else. It's just too easy. It's easy not to think immediately about the person on the receiving end, but once you hit send or post, it's too late, they've seen it. So have potentially hundreds or thousands or millions of others. It's the topic of many a school assembly or an online study or a Facebook post shared on parents' walls. Cameron McCormick is a fellow student at the university we attend. He studies filmmaking with a concentration in directing. I think when I first watched a YouTube video, it must have been like when I was in the second or the third grade, because I remember like it was that video with the dog on the skateboard. My mom like was very against me on YouTube and my older brother was letting me on like secretly. I made my first YouTube channel when I was in the fourth grade, the summer going into the fifth grade. And I remember making that account and like it being a huge ordeal having to talk with my dad and him being like, you're going to get murdered on the internet. And I was like, but I got to make movies and like have a place to post them. Maybe people will see them. And that's, that's what I want to do. That was the appeal to YouTube back in the day, back in its infancy. Anything was possible. There weren't the restrictions of renowned filmmakers posting their short films online or internet famous personalities making high budget video blogs. Nobody had gotten that far yet. All you needed was a camera and yourself and maybe a few friends. That's really appealing to a kid with big ideas. I started making movies when I was like eight years old on an old DV tape. A lot of my other friends had YouTube channels where they would post silly videos and stuff like that. And I knew that like it was a platform for sharing. I was kind of tired of every time I finished a video, I had to wipe it because I had to re-record over the tape for the DV tapes. And so I was never able to like really save any of the projects that I did. And this way I could like do a project one day, finish it, upload it. And then I wouldn't feel bad about completely ruining it and deleting it off the tape by rewriting over it. 
The YouTube creators who were big back then, Michael Buckley and his What the Buck show, the show with Zay Frank, Rooster Teeth, John and Hank Green's vlog brothers, Freddie Wong, they all served as inspirations for the kids who watched them. These people would create collaboration videos with each other, sketches, instructional videos, and the like, and we would do the same. This was just the start of YouTube mania. There's definitely been phases of different creators, and there's only like two that really come to mind that I, I remember like, or I guess three, that I remember like really looking forward to seeing their videos every day when I came home from school. And the first one that I like very specifically remember watching was, oh, what is it called? It's, um, it's a filmmaking page. It's the indie... Oh, Indie Mogul? Indie Mogul. I remember being super into watching those videos, and I I must have binged those, like, weekly. Like, I'm a kid, like, I had that time, and I was super into it, and I thought it was, like, their backyard projects was the coolest thing in the world to me. And I still watch, like, Freddie Wong and Rooster Teeth to this day, but I just, I loved other people making short content the same way that I wanted to make it. And so it was, like, really awesome watching it, because then at the end of the day, I'd always be like, I want to go and do that. I wanted to make short films, like, under 10 minutes long with a bunch of my friends and then have a product that was, like, enjoyable to watch. I started getting, like, really nasty comments on my videos. Like, of the 10 people who watched them, some shithead was watching them, and they were like, you should just kill yourself instead of making content. And, like, really awful, awful things. I, I remember the YouTube channel name, too, right? It was, like, Lampshade81. I was so upset with it. I was like, why Why would someone say this to me? Because like, I never left comments like that, you know? I guess growing up, I was always taught, like, you would, you would never put online something that you wouldn't stand in front of your entire church and show. It was towards the end of the summer, that first summer of having a YouTube channel. There's, like, that main one, and then there's a couple other, like, smaller ones that, like, said pissy things that I was like, whatever. Here's the interesting thing is that like years, years down the line, like four years later, I think I was sitting in a room with my cousin and my brother. He's like two years older than me, but four school years because of like how our birthdays work or whatever. But him and his friends, they started making YouTube like videos and a YouTube channel right after I did. They asked me for help on like installing something on their computer because I was like a good with computers kind of person. And I like opened up like the internet browser and I saw that my cousin's computer was lampshade 81. He was like similar to being an older brother because of how much our families hung out. Like, it was so upsetting that like it was my cousin this entire time who was like the main one. When these comments were coming in, I remember like I'm, I'm a fourth grader and so I'm obviously upset about the fact that someone is telling me like, hey, you should kill yourself or like these videos are awful or whatever they were saying. And so I went to my dad and he was like, if you can't handle the criticism, you are, this is the industry that you want to be a part of. And part of being online is dealing with people being like this, dealing with the criticism. And if you can't handle that, maybe you shouldn't be on YouTube. That was kind of like the point where I was like, all right, it's time to grow a thick layer of skin because YouTube was so much a part of my life. That's like what I did was just I got home from school and I played video games and went camping on the weekends and I watched YouTube videos. Like the idea of not having a place to put all the things that I wanted to make and all the stories I wanted to tell was not worth losing over someone saying a couple horrible things to me. He told you that when you were nine? <laughs> yeah, he told he told me that when... I was nine, but you, you gotta understand that like my dad has worked in newspaper and he's worked in magazines and he's worked in television and he's worked in the army. So he's, he's like 
the hardest nail. <laughs> and so it was just kind of like one of those things. And it's a good lesson to teach your kid. You're going to have to deal with criticism at some point, you know. This might sound harsh. Kids, young kids, having to learn how to deal with hateful personal comments like this before they even turn 10 years old. Maybe it's not a necessity to learn this lesson that young, but it's definitely starting to become the norm. A 2012 study found that cyberbullying is more common now than in-person bullying at schools, and girls are more likely to experience it. Another study found that younger kids are more likely to be victimized than older ones. A key difference between the traditional up-against-the-locker style of bullying and sending people mean comments online is how much more intimate it feels. In cyberbullying through social media such as YouTube, bullies have found their ways into our own online identities, our online selves, ones that we have handpicked and meticulously crafted to reflect who we think we are. Cyberbullying is so highly personal. That's what makes it different. But this isn't limited to a small scale. Predators aren't just your cousin or the kid around the corner or the guy who sits across from you in class or the anonymous troll online. They can also be the people we look up to. The personalities we watch on YouTube have a way of feeling so highly personal. They share their lives with us and we watch them face to face. Oftentimes it feels like we're having a conversation with these people. They ask us to leave a comment on their video and maybe they'll go through and respond to some of them. It's so easy for young people in particular to crave this sort of attention. Often YouTube fills the void of actual real life friends in the cases of the socially awkward. I was definitely there at one point. And this is why YouTube in particular has a pretty bad track record of creators abusing their audiences. Starting around 2014, several YouTube creators, all attractive, charming, easygoing young men, were accused of sexually abusing young members of their respective followings. Since these creators were outed, countless more have been accused, all resulting in varying degrees of prosecution, from legal action to losing audience to nothing happening at all. And this is all to do with how close we can feel to the familiar faces we see on screen. We feel like we know these people so intimately, we feel friends with them, we feel we can trust them, it's so easy to manipulate that trust. So what happens to the kids who idolize these creators? Will they grow up to be like them? Most recently, a creator named Logan Paul faced retaliation for a particularly insensitive video involving a Japanese suicide forest and what he filmed when inside. Paul received negative press and pushback from the greater YouTube community and lost YouTube advertising revenue support, but still millions of his preteen following argued for him and still continue to purchase his merchandise and watch his videos online. The internet feeds off outrage. I doubt it would survive without it. And because our own modern lives are so intertwined with our ones online, we've turned into a reactive people, I think. Would we be experiencing this culture of outrage now in 2018 if it weren't for the internet? I don't think we have a way of knowing. It's certainly been helping. Cameron's dad gave him some great advice. Part of being online is dealing with these people. If we can't handle that, might as well take a break. I think that's healthy. This podcast is a product of Advanced Topics and Storytelling, taught by Dr. Bob King at University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Thanks to Cameron for his contribution to this episode. This episode was written, edited, and narrated by me. It was recorded by Cameron McCormick. Music is by Matt Carlson. If you have suggestions for episode topics, go to century21.blogspot.com. That's spelled out C-N-T-R-Y, number two, number one, dot blogspot.com, and go to submit. Thanks for listening.